2019 was undeniably a very active year for intellectual property law. There were notable Supreme Court decisions relating to trademark and patent litigation and significant developments relating to artificial intelligence and life sciences. And 2020 promises to be just as interesting. We have Jones Day's Meredith Wilkes, Patricia Campbell, and Tracy Stitt here to explain what's recently happened and let us know what to look for next. We'll also talk about what Jones Day's Women in IP Initiative has planned for 2020. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Meredith Wilkes co-leads Jones Day's Global Trademarks, Unfair Competition, and Copyrights Group. She focuses on high-stakes trademark, trade dress, trade secret, false advertising, and design patent litigation matters for global brands and federal and state courts. Patricia Campbell has more than 10 years' experience counseling clients in all aspects of patent portfolio development in the pharmaceutical and biotech sectors. She has prosecuted some of the most valuable patent portfolios, covering approved products from several of the world's premier biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And Tracy Stitt has represented clients as an intellectual property litigator in high-stakes cases before numerous U.S. district courts, the International Trade Commission, and the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. In addition to litigating infringement cases, she counsels clients on trademark prosecution matters, trademark policing efforts, and domain name protection strategies. Thanks to you all for being here. Meredith, Patricia, Tracy, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, well, Thank first you. of all, a hat tip to the three of you. Darn it, if Meredith didn't at the beginning of the year say we're going to do four Women in IP podcasts this year, one a quarter, and we're doing it. So congratulations to Meredith and to you all. So quite an effort. So today, uh, and, and appropriately, I think, today's subject matter is a glance back at 2019 and a look ahead to 2020. You know, I love these kinds of programs because we can cover a lot of material in a relatively short bit of time. Uh, we're going to talk about trademarks patent litigation, other areas of focus, sort of a catch-all uh, category, and then we'll get into life sciences a little bit, and we'll end with what the Women in IP initiative at Jones Day did this year in plans for 2020. So let's go. Let's kick it off with Meredith. Meredith, thanks again for being here today. Let's talk about trademarks in 2019, some notable decisions. In Iancu v. Brunetti, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Lanham's Act prohibitions against the registering of immoral or scandalous trademarks violates the First Amendment. Meredith, run through the case for us and tell us about the reaction to that decision. Well, first of all, Dave, thanks so much for having us and for hosting our fourth Women in IP podcast for 2019. We're really just so delighted to be and, here. And they keep getting better. Have you noticed? Well, yes. And thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Practice. <laughs> the Brunetti decision is, of course, the, the very famous past participle of a well-known term of profanity, which mm -hmm. is how the litigants referred to it when they were arguing in front of the United States Supreme Court. It involved attempts to register the brand name F-U-C-T, right. uh, separated out, F-U-C-T to identify clothing. At the trademark office, um, the examiner refused registration on the grounds that it constituted immoral or scandalous trademark matter. Right. And up and until the Brunetti decision, that was a valid constitutional basis upon which to refuse registration. Mm -hmm. But the United States Supreme Court said, no, that type of prohibition is viewpoint-based discrimination in violation of the First Amendment. The folks who've been watching I don't think we're too surprised by this decision. We got a preview of it a few terms back in the Mattal versus Tam case, where the Supreme Court had said a ban on disparaging trademarks was also viewpoint-based in violation of the First Amendment. So 
The ban on scandalous and immoral marks has been stricken down. The ban on disparaging mark has has been stricken down. But I think there's probably more to the story here in the future. And so we'll just, we'll wait and see what happens. Sure. In fact, we'll get into later on, we're going to talk about maybe is there legislation coming or what other things might be kind of coming up from the ground. But I mean, have you seen a rush of trademark applications that you may have not seen other words based on, on this ruling? You know, um, I think Justice Sotomayor and some of the judges were concerned a little bit about would a decision like the Brunetti decision open the floodgates to, you know, lewd or or obscene trademarks and and a rush to apply and register for these types of marks? And the answer to that is no. And And I don't think that we're going to, because the marketplace reality, I think, will quell some of those concerns. In sure. the United States, at least, you have to use a mark for it to be registered. And I think, you know, truly lewd and truly obscene marks aren't going to get a lot of traction such that people will not be able to use them to the point where they could get United States trademark registration or maintain United States trademark registration protection. Sure, sure. All right, let's stay with trademarks with you for a second, Meredith. Uh, Mission Product Holdings v. Technology LLC. Now, this was about bankruptcy and trademark licenses, correct? We did a program on this earlier. Earlier this year. Remind everybody what that was all about and what the likely impact you see coming. That's right, Dave. We did talk about this one as well in our, our scandalous podcast. Yeah, um, it was. <laughs> trademark day at the Supreme Court. The mission case involved what happens to a trademark license in bankruptcy. The question was answered by virtue of the bankruptcy code with respect to patents and with respect to copyrights, but the bankruptcy code was silent with respect to what happens when you reject a trademark license in bankruptcy in the court and Justice Kagan penning the 8-1 majority opinion answered that question for us. And she said, we're going to treat them the exact same way. Right. And so just because a trademark license is rejected doesn't mean necessarily that the license rights terminate. It simply is going to be treated as a breach of the license as opposed to a flat out rescission of it. Okay. And so the, the practical effect of this decision, I think, is played out in Justice Sotomayor's concurring opinion, where she cautions folks saying, listen, this doesn't mean that every single trademark license is going to survive bankruptcy. And this puts the power in the hands of the drafters, essentially. And and you can draft around what happens to your license in bankruptcy. If you want license rights to terminate by virtue of a breach, then you can put it in the trademark license. And in fact, a lot of licenses do contain such a provision. So it's not an earth-shattering decision, but it does answer an open question that had been out there for some time. And it, it also means that there, you know, state law will play a role in what happens to your license. And there may be others, depending on what type of industry you're in. And all of those things are still alive and well. I see. Well, there's some clarity now for, for situations like that, which I, exactly. I, I guess, I'm guessing was badly needed. All right, let's talk about 2020. And we're going to stay with Meredith for a second on this. We did talk about Romag Fasteners v. Fossil Inc. earlier this year. Now this discussion is moving over to the damages side. Is that correct? That's exactly right. The Romag decision is an interesting one because we literally have a 50-50 split in the circuits right now as to whether or not you have to prove willful infringement to disgorge an infringer's profits. And profits are recoverable under the Lanham Act. They are a recoverable measure of damages. And there is a split of the circuits out there as to whether or not you absolutely positively have to prove willfulness as a prerequisite to recover them, or if willfulness is just a factor to be considered. 
Okay. Now, that was a Supreme Court decision, correct? Well, the Supreme Court is currently reviewing that issue right now. And in yeah. fact, um, not too long ago, I believe a, a bunch of law professors just filed um, their amicus brief on the issue, urging that willfulness should be an absolute requirement before you can recover an infringer's profits. There's there's competing considerations here, and I think that's why you see a 50-50 split. On the one hand, for a brand owner, quantifying lost sales and damage to a brand by virtue of infringement can be difficult. And so mm. disgorgement may be the only way to compensate a plaintiff and to deter infringement. But by the same token, you know, there's balancing considerations. If the parties aren't competitors, does a plaintiff get a windfall? You know, there's no statute of limitations in the Lanham Act, so longtime right. infringers can face the prospect of significant profits being disgorged over a long period of time. So when you have when you see this, these competing considerations, you I think you get a better understanding about why there is, you know, a literally a 50-50 split right now. Sure. It was confusing. I mean, weren't there a bunch of people and a bunch of companies named in that suit? I mean, beyond Fossil, weren't there a bunch of major retailers? I'm thinking Macy's and some people. This was this is kind of a catch-all. I'm thinking of that right case, I think. That's, right? Yep, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, retailers are, are involved in this. It has pretty broad sweeping implications one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And again, I think one of those you know true IP cases that the court's going to have to weigh in on. Okay, I'm surprised something like this hasn't happened before. Booking.com. Right. Booking.com, popular travel site. I think people, well, they book flights and hotels and rental cars and so forth. And the good people at Booking.com want to trademark Booking.com. But the patent office is saying not so fast. What's going on here? That's exactly right. The booking case is interesting for a whole bunch of different reasons. And for trademark nerds, it poses a whole bunch of different questions. But at a, at a very high level, we're talking about generic trademarks. And yeah. it, under the Lanham Act, if... The question is, you know, is this a thing, Booking.com, or is it a brand? Yeah. And if Booking.com is a brand, it can be protected. If it's a thing, then it's not going to be worthy of trademark protection. And so Mm. the question the Supreme Court is going to have to decide is whether Booking.com is essentially a thing or a brand by virtue of adding the .com to the word booking. And um, it raises a whole bunch of different issues with respect to you know the formalities of, of trademark prosecution, as well as some implications about recoverable attorney's fees when you take on the trademark office and appeal decisions. And so there's a lot really bound up here. But at the end of the day, is adding this .com to booking enough to make this a brand right. as opposed to a thing? And, and it's very interesting here because Booking.com is a pretty sophisticated trademark owner, or it hopes to be called a trademark owner. And it went along and, and went to the trademark office, got refused, appealed to the TTAB, mm-hmm. was refused again, went into the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, introduced new evidence, which is why you go into the district court in a situation like this and, and implicates the, the fee pr- provisions, and introduced survey evidence. Very compelling survey evidence that 74% of consumers recognize Booking.com not as a thing, but as a brand. As a brand. And so all of that is going to be in front of the Supreme Court this term. It granted cert to make this decision. Well, based on all the activity and all the flurry of legal action, they've, uh, Booking.com's invested a lot in this, and obviously they're going to play it out to the end. Meredith, I'm always doing this to you. What's your hunch? Give, give, me, a, <laughs> give me a take on what's going to happen here. Oh, this one. This one is tough. 
because the question here is the adding of the dot com enough to take this as a composite mark and turn it into basically the, the parts being, you know, greater than just booking or just dot com because dot com yeah. on its own is a place, right? It's a top level domain. Yeah. And booking is something that you do to get a hotel reservation. So, you know, is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Maybe. Uh, maybe it is. Uh -huh. There are other situations where adding, you know, dot com can result in a non-generic type of configuration. This one, this one is a tough call, Dave. I, I don't know that I can make a call on this one. This one's this one's too close to call. Yeah, I, even on, as, on the generic issue. Yeah, even as a layperson who knows nothing really uh, about trademark law, I mean, other than what I've learned from you guys doing these programs, I mean, I have no idea. Sometimes you kind of think, well, this sort of makes sense based on other things I've read and other opinions I know of. But this is this is a tough one. I'm I'm anxious to see what happens here too. Not so tough, or maybe real tough, depending on your point of view. Patent and Trademark Office is uh, focusing on fraudulent filings moving into 2020. Talk about, if, if you could briefly, Meredith, and, and by the way, Patricia, Tracy, we're not, we're just moving through the agenda. I don't mean to ignore you guys, so please chime in where, where, where appropriate. But tell me about what fraudulent filings are, Meredith, and what the focus is now, what brought all that about? Last couple of years, the Trademark Office has seen a substantial increase in applications for marks, for marks that really are never going to be used in the United States. Okay. And this influx of filing creates problems for legitimate brand owners who may want to try and use or register something that, that arguably is confusingly similar. The United States is one of the few jurisdictions in the world that requires use before you can obtain a trademark registration. Most other jurisdictions in the world are just first to file, and so you don't have to use. And so you file an application, and you can get a mark registered, and you never have to use it. And then that becomes a weapon to use against other folks. But yeah. that's not how things work in the United States, and we've seen a significant uptick in those filings. So in response, the Patent and Trademark Office has implemented a number of different mechanisms, essentially to rid the register of what are considered deadwood registrations, registrations that are not in use in the United States, and also taking some steps now to combat these fraudulent filings. Okay. The, the office has been engaged in random audits to sort of kick the tires on people's registrations to, yeah. and calling upon people to demonstrate that they're actually using their mark in interstate commerce mm -hmm. to maintain the registration. Mm -hmm. They've put in into effect requirements for U.S. counsel if you are a foreign pro se applicant. And many other jurisdictions have similar requirements, but this is you know one of the things that the trademark office is trying to do to, to curb the fraudulent filings if we require U.S. lawyers to show up, then perhaps, you know, we'll be able to deter this type of activity. Mm -hmm. They are considering accelerated cancellation programs, specimen protests, and a number of safeguards are being put into place to protect the existing application and registration information to prevent manipulation. So a lot of different efforts underway. I think we can expect at some point in 2020 or possibly 2021 that the office will start to utilize software that will help them determine whether or not the specimen of use that you're submitting, the demonstration of use in interstate commerce, to determine whether or not this is actually really use or if it's fraudulent, if someone just photoshopped a label onto a good uh, to obtain a registration. So I think those are some of the things that we can expect to see. It's becoming a real problem and, and, and the office is very engaged in trying to find efficient and effective ways to combat it.
Yeah, well, it sounds like it was certainly time based on, on the way you described everything. Okay, before we leave trademarks, let's talk about what might be happening on the legislative front. There's the possible return of the presumption of irreparable harm to trademark cases and the possible modification of 2A prohibition on disparaging or scandalous marks. We talked about that a second ago. But talk about where this might come out legislatively, Meredith. Who might move something through which legislative body? What might be happening? <laughs> so I think we talked about this in, in our scandalous podcast a while ago, but yeah. you know, modifying the Land Act isn't the sexiest way to get yourself reelected to Congress <laughs> uh, or to the Senate in coming uh, election. But that said, the combination of the uptick in fraudulent filings in the United States Patent and Trademark Office, coupled with the fact that the Lanham Act is now 0-2, <laughs> courtesy of the Brunetti and the Mattal decisions, may spark some movement. The House subcommittee is currently considering legislation on the, the fraud front, on the irreparable harm front. I think, in part, movement, in the House at least, could be impacted by what the court does in Romag, depending on what the court does and what the court finds with respect to willfulness as a prerequisite for disgorgement. That could also impact movement on the legislative front. Okay. Okay. We will watch carefully. Okay. Let's move into patent litigation. We're going to talk to Tracy Stitt for a couple of minutes. Tracy, and forgive me, I'm going to read so I get this correct. The, correct. They don't, you know, they tell you don't read because it doesn't sound natural, but I have to, to make sure I present this appropriately. In Helsin Healthcare v. Teva Pharmaceuticals, the question was whether under the American Events Act, an inventor's sale of an invention to a third party that is obligated to keep the invention confidential qualifies as prior art for purposes of determining patentability. Okay, Tracy, unwrap that for me. What happened and what are the implications moving forward? Sure. And first off, just want to compliment you. You did a great job reading that. Very well done. <laughs> See, I've been at Jones Day six years. They finally found something I can do. All right. Well, as you mentioned, Dave, uh, the Supreme Court started off 2019 with a bang in the patent world by issuing this Helsin decision. And what the decision did was address some lingering questions regarding the scope of the on-sale bar, mm -hmm. which is a provision that holds that sales of an invention that are more than a year before the filing date of a patent can be prior art and can invalidate a patent. Okay. And the questions that sort of led to this was the change in language. There was a slight change in language when the America Invents Act was enacted in 2011. The on-sale bar changed slightly. It okay. used to read simply in public use or on sale in this country. And then it was changed to add somewhat of a catch-all phrase. So basically now it says, in public use, on sale, or otherwise available to the public. And so this led to some questions regarding, well, was this a change in the law? Does this change the scope of the on sale bar? Um, in fact, with respect to a particular type of sales, uh, secret sales, in other words, if you sell your invention to a third party, but require them to keep it confidential, can that trigger the on sale bar? The law was clear before the AIA. In fact, there was well-established precedent that held that those secret sales could, in fact, invalidate a patent. And so with this slight change in language came questions as to whether it was, in fact, a change in the scope of the on-sale bar. And the Supreme Court came out with a unanimous opinion written by Justice Thomas, holding that, in fact, the meaning of the on-sale bar was well settled before the enactment of the AIA, and the new language did not upset that body of legal precedent. Basically holding that, you know, all of that, all of the case law remained good case law and the on-sale bar was not, in fact, expanded in scope by this addition of or otherwise available to the public. Yeah. In other words, a commercial sale to a third party who's required to keep the invention confidential mm -hmm. is still enough to trigger the on-sale bar. Okay. Was that an outcome you expected as the matter was moving through the judicial system? 
Yeah, it, it makes sense given the amount of precedent, pre-AIA precedent, holding that the on-sale bar has a well-established meaning. And I think the fact that the court's opinion was unanimous is demonstrative of the fact sure. that this is the right outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's any such thing I should say as a slam dunk at that level, but you know, 9-0 sounds pretty definitive to me. So in mid-December in Peter v. Nanquist, the Supreme Court unanimously held that the United States Patent and Trademark Office cannot recover the salaries of its legal personnel under Section 145 of the Patent Act. You know, Tracy, this was sort of a slam dunk, I think. 9-0 decision. Justice Sotomayor wrote the opinion. Tell us what the arguments were here, what the issues were, and what are the ramifications of that high court decision moving forward? Well, first, I think it's interesting to note that the Supreme Court ended 2019 in a similar way that it started, which is with a unanimous affirmance of the federal circuit. Ah. And the Nanquist case was uh, a case about fee shifting. And for mm -hmm. a little background, the Patent Act essentially sets out two mutually exclusive pathways to appeal an adverse decision by the PTO. You can go either directly to the federal circuit or choose a de novo route where you essentially file a new civil action at the Eastern District of Virginia. If you choose the latter route, you're allowed to introduce new evidence, potentially expert testimony, and thus that route is often more expensive. So applicants who choose to go through the Eastern District of Virginia are subject to a fee-shifting provision, 35 U.S.C. Section 145. Okay. And that provision provides that all of the expenses of the proceedings shall be paid by the applicant. Right. So that provision, it applies regardless of who wins. Uh, mm -hmm. The fee mm -hmm. shifting isn't limited to prevailing parties. Okay. And so the Nanquest case actually has an interesting history before we get up to the Supreme Court. It started when the applicant challenged an adverse decision from the PTO denying a cancer drug. They chose the de novo route, so the more expensive route, mm -hmm. and the Eastern District of Virginia granted summary judgment to the Patent and Trademark Office. And so at that point, the director did something that hadn't been done in over 170 years of Section 45, and that is to seek over $100,000 in expenses, which included attorney's fees that were incurred in defending the action. Okay. The Eastern District of Virginia denied that recovery, and the PTO appealed to the federal circuit. So in February of 2017 is when we first go to the federal circuit. Mm -hmm. And a divided panel reversed and remanded for actually for a grant of attorney's fees, holding that they weren't sure the American rule applied here. And the American rule is sort of a bedrock principle of litigation here in the U.S., which is that each party pays their own fees. They pay their own way, unless that presumption can be overcome. Okay. So the federal circuit said... Initially, they weren't sure that the American rule would apply, but even if it did, they held that the language of Section 145, which used the term expenses, included attorney's fees. But then an interesting thing happened, which is that without any prompting from the parties, the federal circuit sua sponte issued an order vacating its opinion and reinstating the appeal and voted in favor of conducting an en banc hearing. So essentially a do-over. Okay. And... In July of 2018, the Anbach opinion issued, and this time the Federal Circuit came out the other way and affirmed the Eastern District of Virginia's denial of attorney's fees, holding that the American rule applied and the language of the statute didn't overcome it. This, interestingly, it created somewhat of a circuit split because the Fourth Circuit had previously held that expenses as used in a corresponding fee-shifting provision in the Lanham Act, which is you know addressing trademarks, included attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. So with, with that background, we get to the Supreme Court and they accept the petition. And the question that was presented to them earlier in 2019 was whether the phrase, all of the expenses as used in section 145 
could encompass personnel expenses of the USPTO, such as attorney's fees Mm -hmm. that are incurred when they defend litigations. So the Supreme Court hears arguments on October 7th. And as you noted, they made short work of this one. Their opinion came out on December 11th. So that's pretty quick, considering how slow the wheels of justice can often move. Well, yeah. And I got to give you props here because you and I had talked about this case middle of last year or so somehow it came up maybe in another podcast maybe just you were and you kind of predicted this outcome i didn't know if you said it was going to be nine zero, but i remember you were leaning certainly this way if i can you know tell our audience that yeah so maybe i, I should retire from ever predicting supreme <laughs> come outcomes again but uh, i think this one the oral argument the tenor of the oral argument sort of indicated where the justices were going to go here and the way they came out was first of all they held that the American rule did apply to Section 145. So they rejected the government's argument that that rule only applied to so-called prevailing party statutes. And then the question became, you know, okay, let's look at Section 45. And are we in in a world where that presumption is overcome? In other words, is it clear enough that attorney's fees should be included here that we're going to allow them to be recovered? And the Supreme Court, obviously, all of them were in agreement that the answer to that was no. The plain text of Section 145 doesn't overcome the presumption. The use of expenses in other common statutes also doesn't overcome the presumption of the American rule. And finally, the history of the Patent Act itself, in fact, reaffirms that attorney's fees should not have been included. Again, the practice of the Patent Office for over 170 years before this case was really to not seek those types of fees. And that weighed in the Supreme Court's decision. And other parts of the Patent Act where attorney's fees are included, you know, the Congress was explicit, for example, Mm -hmm. Section 285. So uh, this was a case where Again, the Supreme Court didn't take too long to make up their mind and, and came out in a unanimous way. Okay. Okay. Be- besides the obvious, what do we take away from this decision? Is there anything underlying that you know we ought to be aware of moving forward? I think the American rule continues to, yeah. to be very important in U.S. litigation, and this reaffirms that. And in practical terms, what's going to happen is the PTO will go back to the practice that it had really been following for over 150 years. And that is that they won't be seeking attorney's fees in um, these appeals or, or the, the de novo review at the Eastern District of Virginia when an applicant is uh, dissatisfied with a decision that they have. All this backstory going back to October 17 or something you said, and yet we're kind of back where we are or where we were, aren't we? Yep. In effect, the patent office tried something different and, and they were not successful. And so we'll go back to the status quo. Good enough. Tracy, thanks. Thank you. Let's go over to Patricia Campbell. We recorded a podcast on Section 101 and patent eligibility earlier in 2019. Patricia, what's happening or what should we be looking for in terms of Section 101 reform moving forward? Yeah, David, the three branches of the government have been busy. We have the courts being busy, USPTO being busy, and we also have Congress being busy. So maybe we'll start with the courts. And we've had a case that was decided by the Federal Circuit in 2018 and anybody who's a patent practitioner will know this case. It's Berkheimer versus Hewlett-Packard. Mm-hmm. And in 2018, the Federal Circuit held that the question of whether certain claim limitations represent, and I'm going to put this in quotes, well-understood, routine, conventional activity, end quote, raised a disputed factual issue, which precluded summary judgment that all of the claims at issue were not patent eligible. So then... In, uh, at the end of 2018, Hewlett-Packard petitioned for a right of certiorari mm-hmm. on the following question. 
And the question is whether patent eligibility is a question of law for the court based on the scope of the claims or a question of fact for the jury based on the state of the art at the time of the patent. Okay. And the point is the following, that if patent eligibility is a question of law, then patents can be kicked out by courts early on in summary judgment as not meeting the hurdle for 101. But if patent eligibility becomes a question of fact, then litigation proceedings continue. So this is a hot topic. We've right. seen a lot of amicus briefs filed in 2019. It's not clear that the Supreme Court is going to grant cert for this particular case, but we should know reasonably soon. Okay. If Go ahead, please. But if, if the court doesn't, then what happens then? We'll just stay where we then, are. Then the Federal Circuit case law becomes the law of the land. Okay. And Meredith, I wanted to turn to you for a moment because you've been watching you know, the filings in the Berkheimer case, and you may have an update for us. You know, it, it's interesting, Patricia, earlier this year, I think like two days after the Supreme Court asked the Solicitor General to weigh in on this 101 issue in the Berkheimer case, we were talking about it in our podcast. And I don't know what's going on with the vibes uh, out there, but literally last week, <laughs> as we were planning for our podcast, the Solicitor General had responded to the Supreme Court's request and provided its commentary on both the Berkheimer petition and the Vanda case, which is a, an important decision in, in your space and, and in diagnostic medicine. And the Solicitor General has told the Supreme Court that it does not think that granting certiorari in either the Berkheimer decision or Vanda is the right thing to do. And for reasons that I'll, I'll let you expand on with respect to Vanda, the court said, listen, the Berkheimer question really is one that is sort of a civil procedure type question, right? Is this a question of law? Is this a question of fact? Yeah. And it's premature to make that determination until we get to the other issue, the more 101 centric issue that's raised by Vanda and, and all the other sort of splits that are they're running around out there. And so the Solicitor General at least has weighed in now and said to the Supreme Court on both cases, no, we don't think the time is right. Yeah. And that's an interesting segue for taking a look at what's going on in the life sciences. So, Meredith, you mentioned the Vanda decision, which was a decision in 2018 in the Federal Circuit. And there was another important decision in the Federal Circuit, Athena Diagnostics versus mm -hmm. Mayo Collaborative Services. And in earlier on in 2019, the Federal Circuit invalidated Athena's patent claims, again, under Section 101, as being directed to diagnosing neurological disorders by detecting the presence of antibodies to a certain protein. Athena didn't like that result, and in October of this year, they filed a petition for writ of cert on the following question, whether a new and specific method of diagnosing a medical condition is patent-eligible subject matter, where the method detects a molecule, and here's the key, never previously linked to the condition, using novel man-made molecules and a series of specific chemical steps never previously performed. So what they're really saying is, look, if we meet the hurdle for novelty and probably also for inventive step, why are we being cut off at the knees with respect to patent-eligible subject matter? So that was the petition. In November, just last month of 2019, Mayo filed its brief arguing that and I put this in quotes, any further action regarding the patentability of medical diagnostic claims 
such as Athena's that employ conventional known techniques should and does rest with Congress. End oh. of quote. Yeah, so we're going to turn to Congress in a minute here, Dave. That's reassuring, but go ahead. <laughs> I know. And then just yesterday, yesterday being December the 9th, 2019, Athena filed its reply brief. And this reply, again, reiterated the points made in its petition for cert and dismissed Mayo's argument. And uh, this is kind of interesting because speaking of timing, as Meredith was pointing to uh, a few minutes ago, this reply, that is Athena's reply, comes three days after the United States Solicitor General recommended that the Supreme Court grant cert in Athena or another case rather than in Vanda Pharmaceuticals and Berkheimer. So who knows what's going to happen, but it's possible that the Supreme Court might grant cert for Athena, might not grant cert for Berkheimer. Uh -huh. We really don't know. So, and, and, and I really can't prognosticate on. You knew what I was going to ask, know. right? You, you cut me <laughs> off. I, you're, you're, you knew I was going to try and put you in a corner and you just wouldn't have it. So good for you, Patricia. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really, I really, I don't think any of us really know no. how the Supreme Court is going to rule on these life science cases. And uh, I really wouldn't even want to hazard a guess. But there's going to be a lot of action in 2020. And I, I think we might well see this Athena case go to the Supreme Court. So that's what's happening with the courts. Yeah. If I can take two seconds and talk about the USPTO and then Congress, and then we can move on to AI. That sounds great, Patricia. Go ahead. Okay. So with the USPTO, as you pointed out, David, our very first podcast of 2019 yeah. was about patent subject matter eligibility and mm -hmm. included the USPTO's revised guidance in January of this year. And the USPTO has not been idle in October of this year, they published a patent eligibility guidance update mm -hmm. where they had additional new examples, an index of all the old examples, and a chart of subject matter eligibility court decisions. So what you can say about the USPTO is that they're trying their darndest to keep up with the courts and with every new federal circuit decision that comes along and to revise their guidance to applicants and to patent examiners going forward. And then all eyes on Congress. Right. So Congress has been busy as well. So what we know uh, is that on April 17th of this year, 2019, several lawmakers, and here's the key from the Senate and also the House of Representatives, wow. released a bipartisan, so when was the last time we saw that, bipartisan, oh, wow. bicameral yeah. framework for statutory reform and this statutory reform is really, let's get rid of the old judicial exceptions mm -hmm. based on case law for patent eligibility, and let's just enumerate what is patent eligible. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens. Congress has been busy with other things, as we know, but yeah. all eyes are on Congress for 2020. Is it in committee somewhere, or is it moving to the floor of the House, or what are you hearing in terms of how soon might something move along with this? I think it's stalled, David. I can't tell you exactly where it is, yeah. but I think I think that we, you know Congress has had its eyes in different directions. Oh sure. I would expect them to pick it up again in 220. Okay, 
All right, good. Well, it's nice it's progress, at least, or the appearance of progress, if nothing else. So we're going to wrap this up in a few minutes. I wanted to talk about AI for a second, artificial intelligence. I mean, if there's a hotter topic relating to IP in a lot of other areas of law, for that matter, I don't know what it would be. But uh, Patricia, can you talk about some of the significant developments in the artificial intelligence space this year? Is there anything you know moving that we should know about? Yeah, no case law other than a deep concern that subject matter eligibility may come into play here. But the USPTO here again has been busy. In August of 2019, they published questions Mm -hmm. related to the impact of artificial intelligence uh, inventions on patent law and policy. In October of this year, they extended this inquiry to copyright, trade secret, trademark, and other IP rights impacted by AI. And then again in October of 2019, the USPTO issued new guidance to address, quote-unquote, mental step challenges to patent eligibility of AI inventions. So just to step back momentarily, there's case law that suggests that if you can do the calculation in your head through mental steps, it's not patent-eligible subject matter. So one thing that AI is, is very disruptive, and clearly the USPTO examiners don't know how to review patent applications directed to this area of artificial intelligence, and um, it's it's a moving target right now. So lots to watch, lots to watch next year. Lots to watch. Let's wrap it up with this: women in IP. Meredith, let's get back to you. Jones Day's Women in IP initiative had another great year in 2019. Talk for a moment, if you could, about what the group did this year and what the plans are for 2020. I agree 100%, Dave. Our Women in IP initiative really did have a fantastic 2019. We did some terrific podcasts. Yes, we did. Um, and we, <laughs> we also offered some really great CLE programs at our, our Jones Day offices throughout the United States in all sorts of disciplines, in the trade secret discipline, in the litigation discipline, in the brand discipline, and in, in leadership. And these were well attended by our clients, by members of the community, and of course, by all of our Jones Day attorneys. And we are looking to continue that very positive momentum into 2020 without giving away everything um, and and sharing all of our secrets. You can look for more of the same. We're going to do some more podcasts if you'll have us. Oh, of Um, course. And we will will offer at least four more CLE programs next year in the brand space, in the leadership space, Mm -hmm. in the courtroom space. And um, new to our lineup um, in Silicon Valley, we'll be doing a technology transactions and licensing program. So a lot of really great content to come from Women in IP in 2020, to say the very least. And you guys really do do a good job. You know, some of these things are not always well attended. I mean, it, and it depends. It's nobody's fault. But, you know, what's interesting, what isn't, what do people need in terms of a CLE, all that stuff. But you guys tend to, I don't know if there's anything any such thing as a sellout in this context, but I know you guys packed the room. So congratulations. You're doing something right to bring people in. So that's awesome. So congrats. Well, thank you so much. We've got a, a really great group of people devoted to the cause, and, and we, we really pride ourselves in being able to deliver some, some great programming. We're very blessed in that respect. I'm yeah, looking forward to keeping tabs on you guys. We do a lot more of these. So thanks so much. Meredith, thanks. Patricia, thanks. Tracy, thanks. Thanks Sounds so much, great. Thank, thank you. you. Complete bios for Meredith Wilkes, Patricia Campbell, and Tracy Stick can be found at jonesday.com. While you're there, check out our Insights page for more podcasts, publications, videos, blogs, newsletters, and other important information. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts and wherever else podcasts can be found. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time.
Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.